You don't have to say my family name if you want. Well, I was going to actually say. <laughs> <laughs> That's a trouble for me. And sometimes it's not well accepted, you know. I think your last name is still just slightly better than Larissa Trump. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name, and you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening, and thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is The Beirut Banyan. I'm stressed simply by watching the news, and I'm not a journalist. I'm an observer. And I'm on my phone, I'm up late at night, and I've been doing this for, I think, 48 hours now, just sort of glued into what's happening. And this level of anxiety is so unhealthy. And then I think of myself as just somebody who's who can afford to just flip my phone and play around with what's happening. And then I think of someone like you, a, a journalist who does this for a living, and I can only imagine the level of anxiety you you deal with on a daily basis. So before we go down the Lebanese sort of journey, before we jump into Lebanon, I'm curious just from your side, watching the election now, and it's not like you are a journalist based in Iceland or in New Zealand or wherever, a country that's, let's say, fairly stable. You're covering a very difficult terrain. And then you're also now watching the U.S. election, albeit from afar. I'm curious, just your own personal interaction with the story. Do you find yourself obsessing with every single tweet? Are you actually spending all of your free time just on social media or traditional media? Or have you, as a journalist, found a way to actually step back and appreciate life without all this chaos and uncertainty no i haven't stopped watching since since it all started <laughs> now i'm watching my phone because you know trump again is uh, filing a new lawsuit now so i haven't stopped watching i feel very very connected to that uh, terrain even though i'm in lebanon but i live in I lived in the States and I covered the elections and I was there for Obama's uh, uh, election when he was elected. You know, I've, I've covered, you know, all the primaries, traveling from state to state, you know, meeting the people, getting to know the process. It's, it's very complex for someone uh, in Lebanon, you know, it's, it's totally different how it goes in the States. So I feel very connected to what's happening. And I'm, I'm, I'm very frustrated that I'm not there. I really wanted mm. to be there. And uh, 
it's so interesting for me. I cannot stop watching, you know. I am glued to uh, uh, CNN and all other channels and uh, the, the Twitter and the news and, you know, the statistics state by state, county by county, you know, this uh, mail-in ballots and all that stuff, you know. Uh, the first night, I, I barely slept for two, three hours, and I only right. slept because I knew it's going to take time and days. And now I'm, I'm just waiting for tonight because, as you said, there will be a closure. Maybe, maybe. I, I'm glad though that you're actually, maybe you're exposing the whole profession, which is you're frustrated that you're not really at the story. You're watching yes. it from afar. I would have actually expected the opposite, which is you're maybe relieved that you don't have to cover this and that you're, for better or worse, you're in Lebanon, covering Lebanon. But I like that. So it's really in your blood that you want to be sort of observing every detail as close as possible. I, I, I'm, I'm curious, though, but going back to the Obama years and your coverage of, of, the, of those elections, did you sense that there was this level of anxiety? And, and I mean it on both sides. As a journalist, sort of trying to keep up to date every single minute, every second, and the citizenry that's been interacting with the whole story and, and participating with voting. Or is this, is it really the same? It's just that maybe we're experiencing it differently because of social media and because of its instant sort of delivery. Look, the job is uh, itself is, is very stressful, especially when you're covering <laughs> elections, you know. Yeah. Uh, the follow-up, the non-stop follow-up, you know, every single detail. And it was very difficult for me because I'm not an American. I was new to the system. I mm. had to do my homework. I had to make the public in the Middle East because, you know, I used to work for an American channel broadcasting mm. to the Middle East. Mm. You have to simplify the story. You have to explain the story, you know. Mm. Mm. It's... For them, some people think it's about the popular vote. They still don't understand what's the electoral college. Yeah. If you tell them about Maine, where you have uh, no winner, you know, they split the votes. And mm, if you tell mm. them about state by state, it, it, there's the stress of the job itself, being an outsider covering uh, the elections and trying to relay the message properly. Um, right. right. But it's so interesting because, you know, you have a proper system. You have democracy in action, which is something um, rare for us coming from the Middle East, you know, in Lebanon elections. You know, when Trump is uh, tweeting now, stop the fraud, he is talking nonsense because the fraud is here in, in a country like Lebanon. Maybe in, in the States, it's 0.0.1% or maybe it's human mistake, but there's no fraud as he's making it appear, you know. Right. So there's a lot of elements, but it's one of the most interesting stories to cover. I'm glad that you're, you're in a way, you're telling you're telling a story to a, a foreign audience, in a sense. You're trying to explain an American election to an audience that doesn't have direct access or maybe doesn't participate. But I'm glad you point. You're you're talking about things like the electoral college and indirect voting. I actually find myself increasingly uh, trying to simplify states and state rights and the electoral college system, and I I 
accidentally find myself referring to sectarianism, but not through sect, through state. And I often sort of, and I made this in passing recently, and I think it had no, the audience was really limited to me. No one understood what I was talking about. I said, no, Wyoming, they're the, uh, they're the Protestants. <laughs> very small, very small, but they're represented. They have a voice. They have a voice, and it's, it's sort of secure. Montana, well, the, uh, the, maybe the Greek Catholic vote. <laughs> small, but important. California, you know, the Maronite vote. New York, the Sunni vote. And I sort of went on with this, and people were like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, no, no, but this is a way to maybe alleviate uh, concerns, alleviate minority concerns. And minorities in the states is sort of, maybe it's multi-layered. And you have state rights that are protected as well. Now, that conversation among American friends has no, I mean, this guy has lost his mind. But to me, it does make sense. And I often think of that sort of guarantee, that indirect, that indirect passage to the White House, is maybe the thing that we lack the most in Lebanon, which is something like a Senate or Majlis Shiuch or something like that. Does that resonate with you at all? And I'm asking really as, as a citizen, as a journalist, and just somebody trying to deliver the message. Does that framework sound reasonable to you or is that too romantic of a comparison yes yes no 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 i i hear you and talking about the senate that's what needs to be uh, taking place in lebanon a senate yeah. for the sects anything right. else we're done with it because yeah. everything these days is connected you know yeah the maronites the sunni the shia the, the Rus, you know put them all there let them feel secured in that Senate, you know, represented right, and let right. the system work yeah. because our system is dysfunctional right. and uh, that that could be one of the solutions. I'm glad that you're not tired. You want to be there, but maybe you are tired, but you still want to cover the story. Are you finding... I'm always ready to cover, you're always the, ready story. To cover the story. I want to just, I mean... It's been a very difficult year, I think, for everyone, in particular in Lebanon. It's been a very tough year. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm at an advantage. Since January, I've been abroad. I've been trying to watch things from afar. And I can't imagine ever, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. And at the same time, like you, I really want to be there and experience what's happening among people that I care for. And then I remember all the time that I'm fortunate to be away from this tragedy. But then I have access to people like yourself, and you're in a way covering every single moment possible. And I saw you in Naura recently, and you shared something that made me um, maybe both nostalgic for an era that I'm not, I've, I'm too young to be part of. And also, maybe it's almost like a missing link. You, you shared a photo of the rail network, the railway in Naura crossing over to mandate Palestine. So this is probably pre-1948. And it's uh, it's broken. And the, the rail kind of juts out to the sea. And then I assume beyond the border, it keeps going in its dysfunctional state. My guess has been removed. but But nonetheless, it's almost like it's functional on the other side of the border. Right, functional, but probably, I mean, it's no longer that 
choo-choo trains, probably just a different sort of real network altogether. But yeah, there is a real network, and that but our side is sort of the corrosion, the broken rail. And I and I at the same time, I love that picture. I really love that picture. Now, I maybe this is a bit of a complicated question, but I'm asking you as somebody covering maritime negotiations <laughs> indirect through Unifil then the Americans involved and, and all, all sides involved trying to find a way. And then you're taking a photo of something that really hits home to me. To you, to you, is that part of the story as well? That this part of the region, we're going now to Lebanon and, and our part of the world, that it wasn't so complicated long ago, that you could literally hop on a train and head south and keep going and it wasn't a concern. It wasn't a strategic, it wasn't a geopolitical quagmire. Those rail, that rail link is history and it's recent. It's recent history. Does that hit home to you as a reporter? Or is that really just sort of like an image you saw and you're like, oh, that's that's a bit odd. It's still here. And that's that. It stops there. I was standing on the hill. Yeah. The closest hill to where the talks are taking place, you know, very secret talks. We cannot mm. even get close to two kilometers away. Oh, is it two? Really? That's that's yes. The okay. Not allowed to see anyone, you know, very secret talks. Mm. Uh, no one wants pictures, videos taken, you know. Uh, and then I I noticed the rail tracks. I couldn't see them properly from up yeah. the hill so i uh, it's a long way down to the shore but okay i had a lot of time you know yeah. we are sitting there <laughs> and waiting yes so i took a long walk down and then i looked at the railway tracks and and i took that picture and it made me think of broken railways broken country broken ties you know these railways, uh, they told me, because I researched, and they were coming from Turkey yes. to Hamas, right. to Beirut, all the way to, to Palestine. Haifa, yes, Haifa, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, and what I thought about, everywhere else, they are functioning. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying now open the borders with, uh, you know, we are at war with Israel. That's a long story, a complicated story. That's a different issue. But I'm saying everywhere else, you know, they are functioning. And can you imagine Lebanon if you had railways connecting Baalbek to Beirut, to Naura, right. to Tri Tripoli, to, Bay you know, it's it's yeah. unbelievable. No, just... but, and I'm going to project a question on you. And I know so I'm being a bit unfair, but I really like that photo. And I, I liked that you actually, you walk down the coast <laughs> to take that photo. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to just assume that it resonated with you just seeing it and what's left of it. Would you, again, it's from your side, immediate, uh, your immediate reaction, getting something like a real network running again requires ending the conflict that keeps Lebanon dysfunctional. And by conflict, I mean the geopolitical quagmire Lebanon has sort of been part of for, for way too long. That in other words, you have negotiations next door, two kilometers away, 
and the Americans are involved, and everyone is sort of trying to find just an indirect way to negotiate maritime uh, passage and, and that. And then we have a real network that's just rotten and it's falling apart and it's, it's almost completely gone. That, that you have to fix the larger issues to get to the smaller ones? Or do you see it maybe differently that the smaller issues can be fixed even while you have the strategic regional nightmare at play? And I, I, the reason I'm asking you this is because for me, that seems to be the fundamental issue when it comes to the last year of protests, that you have people wanting the basics to work. 13 months, you still don't have that sort of that passion on the streets turning to anything long term. So I'm just curious, as a reporter, again, as somebody covering the region, that the regional problems are keeping basic things working? Or do you maybe see it differently, that simple problems can be fixed, even while regional issues are sort of chaotic and uncertain and, and detrimental. It's sad that we are talking about basic things in 2020. <laughs> we are yeah. talking about electricity, water, proper, uh, you know, public transport, you know, health, uh, you know, it's so, so sad that this should be linked to the regional issue. And it's not. For mm. me, mm. it's corruption. Okay. We don't the system is broken. There's too much corruption, corruption everywhere. Mm. It's all interlinked. You know, you want to fix this. What about this? What about this? My share, your share, you know, and all that corruption is leading now to a bankrupt country. You know, we're out of money. So if they really mean what they mean now that we need to start with uh, proper uh, reforms, okay? Let's say we believe them for the second because the same people who've been messing up the system for 20 years, suddenly they want to do reform. You know, right. they woke up yeah. and, oh, let's do some reforms because uh, I believe uh, there's nothing left to be stolen. That's why they want to do some reform, you know. <laughs> they let, the country is bankrupt. There's nothing to take anymore. So let's fix. Maybe at the later stage, we can start uh, sharing the pie again. But now uh, it's right. all empty. So I, I believe it's uh, a lot of matters in Lebanon are linked to the regional issues. That's true. And... Uh, that's one of our big issues, you know. Now we are waiting for a government. We have to wait for the results of the U.S. elections. How this is nonsense, you know, this is, we are ruled by irresponsible leaders. So basically, fixing the basics, fixing the country is, uh, is because of uh, incompetent leaders and because of too much corruption that became the rule and not the exception. I, I like that you brought up corruption. And, and I, I share that sentiment as well, that it, it's hard to explain why you can't deliver basic services, even when you're living in a very difficult environment. I, I, I share that sentiment fully. But I, I'm, maybe I'm curious about beyond, let's say beyond the basics, sort of trying to turn Lebanon into a functioning state and something that 
does not keep wobbling and, and collapsing over time. Is that possible with the current regional environment we live in? And I mean, when I say current, I don't mean 2020. I mean, really modern Lebanese history that you have, you have many different overlapping conflicts that affect Lebanon and Lebanon maybe hosts some of these conflicts as well. That I'm, can you actually deliver something that works so long as the region is this toxic to Lebanon? And, and I, the reason I brought up the rail network is really because it strikes me as, as very strange that in the 1930s or even earlier, a century ago, we had infrastructure and it's so bizarre now, 100 years later, it's impossible to imagine infrastructure. So that's, I mean, and I'm looking at the last sort of, the last century, the modern Lebanese history of a country that really just collapsed on, its, on itself. And then at the same time, a population that wants basics to work. So that, that dichotomy, it's almost like, maybe I'll, I'll ask it differently. Is the regional, regional conflict simply an excuse to not get the job done by the ruling political class? Is it sort of a, we can't take care of issues at home because we live in a turbulent environment? Or is it really, really simply corruption that we just have a horrible group of people that are thieves and it's corruption really is the, 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 the most pressing issue that the other issues are not as important? I would say corruption, number one, Mm. Sectarianism is another disease killing us, you know, and uh, incompetent leaders and the regional issue as well is very mm. toxic, as mm. you say, mm. it's toxic, mm. but it's, it's, it's been used as an excuse, you know, it can affect things in Lebanon, but mm. it cannot be the main reasons why we used to be much better before what happened now. What brought us here, you know? Because you need to look at the uh, economy now. It's, we're talking about Lebanon, Venezuela, and uh, Zimbabwe together, you know, in the same basket. What brought us here? Bad uh, uh, politics, bad um, politicians, bad rules, uh, corruption, corruption, you know. Uh, so it's, it's a mix, actually. There have been a lot of alerts, you know. It didn't happen suddenly on October 17, right. as some right. people would like to believe. These days, they would just tell you, yeah, it's all because of the Saura. Look what you did to the country. It's been happening for the past 10 years. It's a lot of people... Uh, they'd ring the bells, but they kept on, they kept on with the same wrong policies until look, look what happened. So I'm going to now take that, that response and maybe throw it back to what's happening in America. A, a very eccentric president that's being kind, uh, a, a, a bit of a monster online who threatens sort of dictatorial tendencies and you referred to one earlier stop counting we don't need to keep counting it's almost like stop the fraud stop the fraud stop the fraud and and you know things like things that you don't expect from an american president 
And this is very unpresidential. Exactly. Unpresidential, unpredictable. He's Donald Trump and he's 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 contained by a system that doesn't let his worst tendencies take fruition. For example, he can tweet things like halt the vote, stop whatever, stop the fraud, or even threaten to sue uh, states for for taking in absentee ballots post November 2nd. At the same time, the system doesn't really care. It's almost like a, he's he's loud. Just he's, some noise in the background. Sorry, sorry. Yes, he's a lot of sound. He's a lot of sound. But then there's the process taking place regardless of what he says and, and what he screams and, and the like. Even Twitter is banning his tweets. Exactly. And I think it's the last 24 hour, almost every tweet, it's uh, yes. there's a warning. Right. Okay. That's the American system being challenged by a very unusual figure and a very unusual time in American history. Throw that to Lebanon. Is it down to a system that doesn't work? And then you have leadership that can abuse what's left of the system at their discretion. I'm trying to understand why the corruption of Lebanon stands out so much. And the comparison to Zimbabwe is is accurate. The comparison to Venezuela and and, and the like is, is, is correct. That is it that there's a system that maybe rewards the worst tendencies of this leadership? Unlike another system that constrains the worst tendencies of a leader. And does sectarianism, sectarianism fit into that? That it's almost like the delivery system in Lebanon encourages the worst form of governance possible. And then the good guys lose over time. And that, that may include the protesters wanting change, unable to affect change. And they're sort of, they lose over time as well. Because I really want to understand, and I, it's a, I know it's unfair maybe to ask you this sort of big question, but I'll ask it anyway. Why Lebanon stands out and, and why it's sort of a cycle rather than something that gets fixed and you can move on from. It's almost like a perpetual problem for Lebanon. Because uh, corruption is too deep. Mm. You know? mm. it's too, it became the rule and not the exception in Lebanon. It's just... It's everywhere, everywhere. You have a broken system and corrupted officials, mix them together. I'm not saying I, I cannot generalize even in Lebanon, you know, we're talking a lot about corruption because that's the case. Mm. But uh, when you have one good employee or two good employees, no matter how good they are, when you have eight others in the room that are corrupted, you know, right? so... Right. No matter what you do, the power is in their hands. Uh, tell me about the judges in Lebanon. How independent are they when they are so much linked to those politicians, you know? Yeah. How many corrupted leaders are in prison? Or uh, are, are there any? None. Uh, none. None. Yeah. Yeah. None of them. Because yeah. there's a system of cover-up, you know? Yeah. I'll cover for you, you'll cover for me. Uh, there are very good judges, but what are they doing? Mm. What have they done? What more terrible than the August 4th explosion? 
Right. And uh, three months later, yeah. we know nothing. We know more from the FBI and the French investigators and from the media. We know more about what happened than we know from the people in charge in Lebanon. Most countries that go through this type of political turbulence, you expect maybe you expect something sometimes a worse consequence. You expect anarchy and, and war. You also maybe project proper revolution and the state gets overthrown and something else sort of something else is ushered in. Lebanon it's paralysis. It's perpetual paralysis. So maybe just your thoughts on is there something about protests in Lebanon that doesn't that doesn't sort of go all the way? Uh, I hear you and it's very frustrating because we wanted change. I'm saying we because you know I'm part of the people. We all want change. We all want the system to function. We want change. We want reforms. We, you know, we want a proper country to live in. You know, basics. And it's very frustrating after all that happened. You know, as if they are just acting as if nothing happened. You know, but yeah. it didn't fade away. It's not about protests and people in the streets. What happened on October 17? broke all the barriers mm, something mm. changed you know not in the system not in the faces and in the politicians we see and the way they act that didn't change yet right. you know they have a lot of immunity it will take a lot of time to change but something changed within the people you know they are more convinced than ever that sectarianism uh, is something that is storing us apart. Uh, they, they, they set new rules that were not there before. And I totally believe that uh, this revolution is, is, it's not gone. It's, it's a long way, a mm. long way ahead. And it's, it's going on through talk through panels, through discussions, you know, in in the media, in, in, in different uh, ways. It doesn't mean uh, we need to see people protesting all the time. Yes, it's frustrating after all what happened. They didn't achieve more. But I think they did achieve a lot. And everybody is asking, what did they achieve after one year, you know, on October 17? And that's the wrong question to ask, you know. You cannot expect much from them. It's they won one battle, two battles, three battles, but you know, it's an ongoing war and you know who the enemy is. So it's going to take years and years, but there's a lot of change happening in the mentality of people, you know, uh, and, and that's very positive for the future at least and not I'm not talking about a year or two, but in the long term for the new generations, there is something very positive about it, you know? So it would be too cynical to just say that October 17, days later, Saad Hadidi resigns. Early October 2020, Saad Hadidi is back. and that He's not sort of back. Where is his government? He's, right, uh, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. So that that's too cynical to just say nothing happened. That something fundamental did happen. That a lot happened. A okay. lot happened. But can I ask you what you mean by mentality? 
and I'm curious about that because you've you've touched on a few things that that I've spoken about hours at length about sectarianism, about secularism, about citizenship, about what it means to be Lebanese today, what what it means to yes. really want political change in Lebanon, and I don't really know the answer. And the reason I I bring this up is I I still at this point I still find it hard to believe that the majority of Lebanese in Lebanon today want to really change the system they live in. I think everyone wants an end to corruption. I, I assume the I assume the overwhelming majority are sick and tired of corruption, and uh, maybe almost uh, it's almost like a an illness that you want to emerge from that the state simply doesn't work anymore. But I still don't don't see the fundamental change of letting go of the old way of governing taking shape yet. And that's because a lot of people are taking advantage of that corruption. Mm, you know, mm, mm. I go to my Zaim, he finds a job for my son, he pays the tuition of my daughter, you yeah. know, he helps me do this. This is how it's going. There's no proper system in place. You know, I have my political party backing me up, helping me up, you know, but this is a wrong way of ruling. And uh, talking about October 17th, a lot of people uh, went out of the political party boundaries, you know, suddenly they noticed that uh, it's not about this guy, about this sect. It's it's really about the country, right. but not the majority. You are absolutely right. That's a sense that I get. And it's also, also, I think, what you said earlier, which is it will take time for the younger generation to sort of take over. Is it is it really there that, that the youth are really, they have to, they have to, in a way, grow into the system and change it themselves because i i see at times university elections that are a bit surprising yes i was just going to mention the lau election rafi hariri election exactly you know the aub election coming up you have a very strong list of independents right and this is how change begins and uh, it's it's not to be taken lightly so would it be fair to say October 17 was the youth stepping in? That's really the change? That the younger generation is now sort of bulldozed its way into the story? That the old ways are going, or by default, they will expire? And that's simply because those generations will will fade as well. Because I, I want to put, I want to be as optimistic about the youth and thinking, maybe even a decade from now or longer that they are they are only hope they're the only hope so again unfair for it's me it's very hard to change the the old mentality yeah it's very hard to change them what about in the near future and talking strictly about managing the current crisis i i'm i'm unaware of any serious sort of uh, discussion about a renewal of IMF negotiations or even the said funds. Why the hurry? Why the hurry? Why the hurry? No hurry. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they are acting. Why the hurry, you know? 
And now the the deal with Alvarez to go through the numbers. Why the hurry? Let's give him, let's give the central bank three more months to give the documents. Why the hurry? So then, then let me gauge your mind here. What do you think is going on, at least in terms of bringing Hadidi back or trying, trying to create a new government? What is it actually that, what is at play here? Because if it's not to unlock those funds, I can't really see any any sense in, in even trying. Old games, new games. So it's the same thing. It's the same routine over and over and over. Yep. Unfortunately, it's so frustrating. I'm so enjoying these three days watching the U.S. elections and not following up on Hariri's talks because I know it by heart without following the talks. I'm, I'm, I'm working on Saturday to see what's happening with the government talks. Mm, 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 I don't need to follow because it's the same thing. Who's going to get this uh, ministry yeah. and no, I am taking this. No, I need this. You know, if you take two, I need three. As if nothing happened, you know, there's no sense of urgency, no sense of responsibility. It's, um, what was the term? We are ruled by klepto. What was the, uh, I always forget it, but it summarizes exactly. I think it's kleptocracy. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's us, unfortunately. You know what? I'm going to go with you back to America. I like the zigzag that we're doing. Let's, let's enjoy the last few days together and, and reflect a bit, but, but maybe pushing Lebanon into the story as much as possible. I've done episodes about U.S. foreign policy towards Lebanon and under the Obama administration, under the Bush administration earlier, and more recently, uh, the Trump policies, I guess is what you would call it. I don't know if it's much of a doctrine. It's just Trump's, Trump's decision-making process. And I sense there is real hesitation uh, among, among Lebanese Americans, among Lebanese in Lebanon, of a shift should Biden win, that there will be a there will be a, a change, at least in terms of the pressure that we've seen in recent months and, and recent years. Softer policy. Softer policy. I like yes, actually I like that you've you've used that word, softer. So do you sense that it's really just cosmetic shift, that it's not a radical change? In other words, that whatever the policies are right now, that they're not going to fundamentally change that you might see absolutely okay. knowing the knowing the u.s how it functions mm. and uh, been in the states and uh, it uh, you know very well between a democrat and a republican of course it's a matter of personality and to talk about trump that's a you know a totally different personality but that's right. his character i'm talking about policies mm-hmm. uh even though, yes, again, he did break the r- rule, Trump, with a lot of uh, policies, but usually foreign policy wouldn't change drastically from a president to another. Hezbollah is on the terrorist list, and that will never right. change. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. sanctions will keep on coming. Uh, a lot of things won't change just by uh, having bite Biden in the White House. But uh, the way Lebanese would look at it, sometimes it's um, delusional. So that's 
wishful thinking, let's say. Do, do you sense that there's still an appetite for more American engagement in Lebanon? Among, among not, not among think tank personalities, not among the Washington sort of crowd. But you know very well, we are not prior, priority right. the states. Exactly. That's what Lebanon doesn't know. They think not only for the states, but they think Lebanon is priority for everyone, which is not the case. We are not on the top list of anyone, especially now with the pandemic yes. and the crisis. Even Macron is too busy now dealing with his issues in France after what happened lately, that right. Lebanon is not on the list of his priorities, not on his list, neither on the list of, even if it's Trump or Biden, whoever comes in, especially Biden, you know, a new president coming in, and it will take him uh, half a year to settle down with sure. the new Congress and the new Senate and all that. We are not on a priority list. For anyone, now when you especially say that we never uh, followed up on our, you know, commitments. So it, the trust is gone. Even the IMF sitting with us again after 16 failed meetings, the trust is gone. They had the best negotiator, the Brazilian guy from IMF, sitting on the table. I'm sure he was saying What's this? C'est du jamais vu. <laughs> you know, I was very lucky. Very lucky. I did two episodes with Henri Shaul, uh, right before, uh -huh. right, sorry, right after his resignation. Yeah. And I sort of, he was able to express the frustration. Which frustration. Just, and, but, but, but when <laughs> I'm you, sure they were saying, what's this? What are they trying to do? Yeah, there's a word in, in Arabic. <laughs> Really? Uh, there, there were people that were seriously trying, on on the Lebanese side, on the, the desperate to and and facing the same obstacles. But when you say uh, that Lebanon is not on the not on the list of priorities, when you say Lebanon, I I'm assuming you're meaning the the Lebanese politicians in power. Mm -hmm. So in other words. If Hadidi were to try to do something, or Birdi, or whoever. No, I'm talking Lebanon as Lebanon, you know, as uh, as a country. I'm sure the only thing they would care about, no civil war. and Because okay. that that is a red line. Okay, the, so I, I think that's clear for everyone. Even the the local parties, that's very clear for everyone. And that won't happen. And that's clear for the international community. And mm. they would have it as a priority. But the, the, Lebanon is not a priority for the international community the way we see it. But can I ask, when you say we, do you mean the population just sort of yearning for change? Or is it we no. the... the, the the, as as the leaders okay but then but i'd like to ask about the population or or for that matter the protesters is there any mechanism to make this cause a priority in the smallest way possible just on the radar of american officials regardless of a trump or biden administration and what i mean here is is it simply a lack of organization and structure that you don't Macron is the most recent attempt. He visits Lebanon. He pleads for uh, for 
for citizens to not vote in the same crowd over and over, he almost admonishes in a way that he has to deal with this crowd as well because of the voter. Is it? Is it but there? We that... need to. We need to remember one thing: uh, the latest elections, the silent majority, fifty percent who didn't vote. Those matter, and those exactly. could change a lot of things. Everybody's right. saying, people, you voted for these. Yes, they did. The 40, 45% of the people voted for the same, same politicians. Crowd. It's yeah. true. But where are those 50%? Why didn't they take part? They could do a change. I'm not saying they will all, all vote. We will never have a 90%. It's not Syria or... Uh, but I'm saying if 20% of the silent majority would believe and would take parts, there would be change. And this is what we bet on in the future. But, but that silent majority, let's say it's more than half the population. Let's say it's more than 50%. Do they need to structure and organize to some degree so that there is a relationship at play, whether it's Macron whether it's the Americans under a Biden or whatever administration down the road. Uh, and I mean it more in keeping the protest cause alive and also making it translate into something that, that can interact, whether it's money from abroad or whether it's political support in the, in the most basic way, just that countries recognize that there is a problem here and there's someone to talk to rather than talking to the usual suspects you know it's I, very I, complex because but, there's a lot of conflicts yes but among i want to exactly now this is what okay I, this is a very it's a bit of a convoluted question and you but, brought up a point also they they really i'm i'm, I'm just projecting what yeah. they uh, they would say they want to be independent from any foreign interference no uh, funding you know, because you know how it's going to be seen here in Lebanon, getting oh, sure. funds from the states or funds from the United uh, European Union or from France. They they want to be independent from any foreign interference so that they won't be accused of uh, uh, following a foreign agenda. They need to be independent in their in their planning, in their thoughts, in their funding and in everything. Uh, there's a lot of conflicts going on among the groups themselves. It's, it's, I don't know why, but it's really hard to, to merge under one umbrella or one uh, political party or... Uh, exactly. Because that would help a lot. Definitely, that would help a lot. So th th this is my most convoluted question I think I've asked on the podcast since I started. And I, I'm, I'm being an unfair to you by, giving, by putting a lot on you. But I'm I'm enjoying this conversation, so I want to I want to go as far as I can without driving you crazy or, or hanging up. I I see it as I see images of uh, David Hale coming visiting Lebanon after the uh, the blasts, and protesters demanding that he doesn't meet with the usual crowd. And he cheers suspects. Them, and he cheers them. The off. usual suspects. The usual suspects. And he he almost affirms it. He's like, he hears them. He hears what they're saying. That thumbs up as he walks by. David Schenker's first visit, 
And I can't remember if this is before the blasts or after it. It escapes me now. It may have been right after, but I'm, I'm not, uh, my memory is not too sharp. He hears those chants and has a civil society discussion from the embassy online, COVID stuff, and, and doesn't meet with the usual suspects, at least the first trip, or doesn't go all out and meeting them. On his subsequent trips, he does. He does meet the, the usual crowd. And I sense that even Macron, his initial attempt was, we're ready to help something new if it emerges. We're ready to have dialogue. And I know that the protest movement is very shy, very shy from being, from taking- Organized. From, 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 organize, from organization and also from appearing to be uh, affected by external actors. At the same time though, the money does need to come from abroad. But the money cannot sort of the this package, this aid, if it ever emerges, will not be Lebanese. It'll be international in nature. So there is some. This need. could come at a later stage when mm. you are when you have a you know when you have a proper organization when you have a, a strong base. You know maybe it could come in a in a different way. It could come maybe at a later stage, but it's it's very complex now. But the lack of that development, at least when it comes to the protest movement in, in the recent sort of, the in the last year, that there aren't real, uh, there isn't something that's growing yet, at least in terms of a new political party. Or for that matter, what you said earlier, that there's splintering, there are groups yeah. competing. Is that several, several of several. Is, several. Is, but is that really more to do with Lebanon? That it Lebanon in its in itself does not encourage that kind of splintering. Or sorry, that type of organization that it by default encourages the the usual communal splintering that we live in. And is it yeah. really is it beyond the protester that this is really this is why Lebanon exists to begin with, for better or worse. That's the only reason why this country is even around. That it's not, it's it's an unusual arrangement, but it seems to have succeeded in its initial stages and it's rotten today, but it cannot be overhauled. Because I, I really want to see this protest movement succeed. And at least, at least being a reasonable alternative down the road. And waiting for the youth to grow up is a, is almost like a risky bet that this youth may grow up and adopt the same the same status quo that we live with today. So I'm I'm curious. Maybe it's a psychological question that why after all the horrible things that have happened and really the blasts, there was not an overwhelming upswell of anger and rage that anger and rage we need sometimes i would say you need you need some violence this this can't go peacefully yeah and it didn't it didn't it's happen. very frustrating it's yeah. it's very frustrating i i i really agree with what you're saying and uh, i cannot understand sometimes where are the people what's happening you know something needs to move you know it's boiling but Everybody's complaining. Everybody's complaining. Nothing is working. Nothing. Absolutely. Life is not livable these days in Lebanon. 
nothing is working. Uh, the pandemic is making it worse. The economy, you know, we lost all our money in the banks, all our savings. 80% of the lira is devaluated. Uh, nothing is working. You know, people should be on the streets, you know, I don't know, burning ministries, uh, kidnapping politicians, violence, anarchy, you know, killing. Really, there should be a, a scenario of a war, you know, happening. How is it possible? You know, August 4th, they destroyed the capital. They killed all those people, you know, I cannot walk in the streets without crying. It's, it's, it's unbelievable what happened and as if nothing happened, you know. I don't know, maybe people are, they lost hope. They are, they, they, they are just too worried. They are depressed. They need to, I don't know. I don't know what's happening, but there is something happening. It is moving. All the time it's moving. Every day something's happening. You know, it's, it's going slowly slowly you know there are there are happenings all over lebanon taking place but it's it's not as it should be it's frustrating you know it should be you know i i remember the 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 netflix movie i watched about the netflix revolution uh, the ukraine revolution oh okay. I, I don't know if yeah. you saw it it no, took no, them a lot of time and a lot of time and it was much harder than here and yes much more violent but they 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 never give gave up i'm not saying they gave up here but it's much more complicated and it's going to take a lot of time and what's sad what's sad and i want to mention that a lot of people are leaving after I, August 4th, yeah. I know yeah. so many people who decided to pack and leave. Yeah. They had hope before, but now they say, I'm not taking it anymore. I actually, that's the one thing I'm not looking forward to when I return and spend some time is that most of the people that I consider my friends and my loved ones are not there. Yeah. They're not there. And I, I know that I, I've put a lot on you, and I, I want to wrap it up by asking you as a, as a reporter, as, as somebody trying to explain the larger picture to a, to a large audience, a huge audience. Sky News Arabia is not a small little podcast. It's a major network. So I, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm curious about your role as a, as a Lebanese citizen, as somebody trying to explain the Lebanese crisis to an international audience. Albeit in Arabic, but it doesn't matter. It's still you're explaining it to a very wide and varied audience, and somebody trying to keep their balance with what's happening. I asked a similar question to Dalal Mawad, uh, not to maybe a month ago or so, about being in the story and maybe having a very strong opinion about what's happening and doing your best to be measured. In, in, in the narrative. Are you able to handle that? And, and I mean it really in terms of immediate pain. The, the blast, the, the, the financial pain that we've all experienced, and then you're trying to maybe deliver a story that is not, it's not about you, it's about sort of all that's happening. But I wouldn't be able to do that. I don't think I could detach myself 
from the story and just tell it as it is without feeling overwhelmed. I'm curious how, how you how you dance that dance, getting up after a horrible incident, going to cover it, or even for that matter, something maybe not as emotionally, uh, maybe doesn't impact your life immediately, but going to Naura and trying to cover Lebanese, Israeli, UN, American things, and just sort of without opinion, almost, just that's what's happening. And I live in a country that's falling apart, but I'm still here to tell an unbiased story. I'm, I'm curious how, how you do that. that is, it, is it something that you detach yourself emotionally when you're covering? And and is there a way that, that you do it that, that maybe uh, works? Because I, I find that to be a very, very big challenge for any reporter covering their own tragedy. Yeah, it's tough sometimes, especially when it's about the tragedy of the explosion. You know, seeing all the pain, seeing all what happened, it's it's very tough. But um, as a journalist, you have some kind of immunity, you know. You need to step mm. back. You need to... Um, not just to make a balance, but you need to step back and to look at the larger picture. Yeah. You know, you need to uh, be as objective as possible, uh, less emotional, because people are there. You are talking to them. They are showing all the pain and all the emotions. You, right. you need to control yourself. And sometimes it's very, very hard, especially, you know, when you're at a, in a tough, tough, tough situation, just covering the explosions, you know, talking about your fellow citizens just butchered there and because of some incompetent uh, politicians, you know, they kept right. all that explosive in the port for all those years. Anyway, you just have to step out of the story and try to, you know, as a journalist, it's it it comes with uh, you know it's it's a sort of immunity you have. It builds up, it builds up, it builds up. Once I was covering the revolution and I was talking to an old lady who started crying, and just after she finished, I I I, I came close and I kissed her on her, you know, and then and then I stepped back and I continued the story and someone was telling me, you know, it would have been better to, to kiss her when you're off air. And I was oh. like, yes, that's true. I shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have done that on air. You know, you have to stay mm. as much um, less emotional, balanced, objective, uh, telling all the views, you know, even when you're talking about uh, Hariri and all and Nabih Birri and Michel Aoun and all their tricks and, and you know what they are doing and you know how bad it's going, you know, you have to tell the story the way it is. But there's always a way to point out to their, uh, to their tricks and games without, uh, you know, in an indirect way telling the story. But, uh, you know, being a journalist is a job like no other. So uh, I have you some... keep learning every day. Every day you keep learning. And that's the beauty of it. You know, 
you know, you never master it. With every story, with every experience, you learn something new. You you become better better at what you're doing, and uh, and during the October 17th, you know, uh, coverage, a lot of people were, you know, trying to tell to tell me that. You know, you're too too biased towards the people, uh, and I was labeled as the Saura journalist, which was an honor for me. You know, the people, <laughs> right. I am the people. Yeah. What are they asking for? It's exactly what I am asking for. You know, yeah. who doesn't want a better country? So, it's uh, yes. I, that's I actually, brief. I got to know you through the protests, and I think that's a fitting title. Yeah, you were definitely on the side of the protest movement. And I say this as somebody, just an audience member, That's that was my conclusion, that you clearly are overwhelmingly supportive of radical change. And I think a lot of journalists uh, express that sentiment as well. And what struck me is I, I became, I think I have some admiration that's new for this type of profession. I, I've done plenty of episodes since the blasts, uh, some of them with journalists, uh, one was with the Lorient Lejour reporter, uh, Julie Kibbe. She was, uh, we were just sort of talking about the, the the tragedy and then sort of came, I, I realized that, oh, she's not even in her home. We're, we're talking somewhere else because her home was was completely damaged. I did episodes with uh, with sort of policy advisors or even some of them are talking heads. Some I've grown quite fond of, including Mike Azar just talking about money and economics and, and all that. And he's physically injured and still committed to trying. And I think it doesn't really matter whether you're a reporter, whether you're a pundit or whether you're a sort of an advisor or anyone stuck in this chaos and this tragedy. The fact is these, all the people that I've come to know are still trying and they haven't given up. And I think that's, that's quite powerful. I think it's uh, it's a very difficult uh, difficult task to put on anyone, especially when they're living in the tragedy itself. This is not something you just hop on a plane and you leave at your leisure. So that's my way of saying thank you for for your work. Uh, I was very hard on you with these very big questions, so I appreciate your time. I also very flattered you stayed you know, up. No, it's it it wasn't like questions really. It was it was a discussion. It was. Uh... I really enjoyed it. Your last name shall remain Aoun. Unfortunately. I can't put Larissa Trump, unfortunately. <laughs> Otherwise, I think it would get, that would be proper clickbait. It's like, click, 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 click. This one will get maybe fewer <laughs> by putting Aoun, but that's fine. No, and and uh, I I hope you you stick to what you do and and, and I hope that you remain the, uh, the, the protest journalist because that is what you are. That's uh, yeah. my appreciation for you as well. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>